Welcome to Filmstrip. These podcasts are spoiler-filled as we discuss the plots, characters, and themes of the films in review. All content used or discussed in these podcast episodes is the property of the respective owners and used under the Fair Use Act, Section 504C2, Title 17. Welcome to Filmstrip. I'm Jay. And I'm Kurt. And this is our review of A Clockwork Orange, starring Malcolm McDowell, based on the novel by Anthony Burgess, directed by Stanley Kubrick, part of our continuing series on the films of Stanley Kubrick. So, Kurt, we uh, we took a little time off and uh, you know decided to come back. And, you know, as I'd said on the Dana Buckler show recently, I bring you on to do the classy stuff. So uh, <laughs> it's time, time to do a little Kubrick again for us. And, uh, well, it's a heck of a way to come back, Kurt. Little bit, yeah. It doesn't get much more. Uh, I don't. I don't even know what the word is to, to, to describe this movie. It's one thing we'll get into. It's like this is. It's you know, kind of defies description a little bit. Yeah, I find it interesting that this has a, a IMDb notation, notation that it's one of the first science fiction films, uh, you know, nominated for best picture. And I'm like, is this science fiction? Is this what people thought science fiction was in 1970? Because I, I mean, I don't really think of it as science fiction. Yeah, it's, it's it's weird. It's um, in nineteen seventy one, I guess this could be possibly be seen as high tech. But you watch it now, and it comes off as you know uh, uh, either too you know uh, too fantastical to be real, and, and at the same time, it's like bang on uh, with the you know twenty first century we're in now. Sometimes, yeah, it's a little close to home. Oddly enough, for two thousand and nineteen, I mean, or at least. A version of it, depending on what you believe, you know, and, and, and how you look at the world. But yeah, it's, I mean, it's a very dark vision. And this was a book that, you know, a former co-writer uh, with Kubrick introduced him to back in the Dr. Strangelove days. And, mm. you know, I, I've heard multiple versions of, you know, when the Napoleon movie went sideways, what <laughs> Kubrick did next. I, actually, I think it's Barry Lyndon, which is the next movie. But I, I've heard that attributed to this, too, that, like, he lost all his funding for that because a movie called Waterloo went under. But he, he decided to do this one. And this holds the notoriety of being the fastest turnaround Kubrick movie ever. I mean, they shot it in a few months and turned it out in mm. less than a year. And I mean, he turned in a four hour cut, hired a bunch of editors and got it down to the, you know, two hours and change that we have here. Yeah. That's one thing that's very striking on the documentaries. They point out it's uh, Kubrick follows his biggest film. I mean, and there's even an argument for it to be, you know, the biggest film of all time with, you know, 2001, a space odyssey, as far as like a scope and a vision, something so huge and so expensive, he follows that up with something relatively low budget. Uh, certainly when you compare 2001, it's like it's gritty, a lot of handheld. It's, uh, you know, it's and I think I think it was said Kubrick, he wanted to see if he could make a small movie again after making, you know, you know Spartacus and Dr. Strangelove. And, you know, and he and he kind of did. Oh, absolutely. I mean, this is a very simple set of sets. It's all, well, I mean, there's a little bit of outdoors, but it's all well-contained. Like, you can tell things are happening almost like a play in some ways. Mm -hmm. And he definitely stripped it back down. And I don't know if that's a bad thing necessarily. I mean, his director of photography here, John Alcott, used natural light for almost all of this, which gives it mm -hmm. a real... 
a different feel for the time because everything would have been false lighted like it almost always is in a movie. And in this case, it's not. And they also use radio mics, so there's not overdubbing <laughs> and all of that kind of stuff. So the only overdubs you hear are the Malcolm McDowell monologues. <laughs> so with that in mind, I mean, it, it's a it's a different kind of movie and take though because what Kubrick is going for here or what I guess what he was attracted to was could he film something that had the incredible amount of disturbing information that the source material held in it and of all the works he's adapted this one is allegedly the most closely adapted to the the original work so have you ever read the book by any chance uh, I, I have not. Um, I'm familiar with it. I know that there are changes, and there's a there's one major change. As far as I'm as far as I know, there's only really only one massive change from the source material, and that's the ending. But this is one of those movies where apparently, any time you're on the if you were on the set, like Kubrick would have a you know copy in his jacket pocket. Some like they they'd be reading the book as opposed to carrying around a script. It's like that kind of an adaptation. Right. It's not. It's not uh, what he would do later when he did a Stephen King. Book, which we'll talk about in a few you know, <laughs> months, uh, but no, yeah, it's it's very close. Like you say, the ending's the biggest difference. I've never read it either, but kind of know its reputation. And and the author even said like he felt like because the movie was such a success that it almost put too much attention on that work and didn't you know allow his other work to uh, to shine forth. Which I th- I found that to be interesting. He felt like it overshadowed him. But um, there's something about authors like when Kubrick uh, adapts their stuff, they all end up hating him for it. Um, and I, I don't know. Maybe, maybe it is just the way he does stuff, but, um, I don't know. It's, it's a different take. Now I have to confess something. I had never seen this all the way through <laughs> until getting ready to review this with you. I knew I'd seen pieces of it here and there, but it was just one of those that I, I never got around to. And I'll tell you a little story. If you go back and listen to you know, any of our previous film strip stuff, you often hear me refer to like the old mom and top pop video store that I grew up with in the town I grew up in in Alabama. And I, the guy in there knew me so I could rent anything in there, right? And the box of this looks like a slasher movie. All right. Because oh, yeah. you get this knife and this triangle and this guy with the half painted eye and it's Malcolm McDowell and he looks sinister because he just kind of always looks sinister. It's sort of his default mode. <laughs> and, 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 he's, and the good should be said, he's supposed to be playing a 15 year old here. He's 27. So everybody yeah. wants to bang on horror movies for, you know, casting 30 year olds as teenagers. That's been going on <laughs> a long time. But anyway, I look at this box and I'm, I don't, I don't even read the back of it. I'm like, I'm in. You know, sat down and I go to rent it. I'll never forget this guy going like, I mean, he knew what I liked. He's like, trust me, Jay, you don't want that. Like, that ain't for you. (laughs) And I was like, really? He said, no, it's not what you think, man. And I was like, really? And he said, no, it's not, it's not a a slasher movie. So I ended up renting, I don't know, probably the 13th day or or six or something and, and moving on. And I never thought about it again. Of course, in college, people talked about this all the time and I saw pieces of it here and there. But I had never sat and watched all of it, but I felt like I knew what the story was because being around, you know, folks like you and film Twitter and all that, you just sort of pick up this stuff. It's like, you just, you know it. And, um, or, you know, in more recent, uh, for us, like if you didn't watch Game of Thrones, you know everything you need to know about the end of it now if you hang out on Twitter at all. Yeah. Uh, so <laughs> you've seen it memed to death. So I had never seen it all the way through. So watching this, I watched it twice for this review. I had a very visceral 2019 response to it. Oh. And I, I kind of wish I had seen it in the nineties when I was in you know high school and college. Cause I may have not looked at it with the same lenses I do now, but I'm assuming you've seen this one before. 
Oh, yeah. The first I ever saw of this movie was in 2003 watching this great American Film Institute special they did on their list of the top 50 heroes and villains. And they did top 50 heroes, top 50 villains. And Alex DeLarge from A Clockwork Orange was is number 12 on the list. And they showed Malcolm McDowell. I had never seen anything of this movie before. I'm not even sure I've you know heard the title before. And they show Malcolm McDowell. He's singing, singing in the rain while kicking an old man in the chest. And I just thought, well, I got to see this. And this was always a movie my dad would never let me watch. There was a handful of those movies, like Pulp Fiction was one, uh, you know. And but that all that does is make movies more desirable, you know. The younger you are, and I finally ended up watching it in 2007, when Warner Brothers put out all these great Kubrick DVDs with loads of special features and interviews because it took a while for that to, you know release to happen. So I pick up a Clockwork Orange and I finally sat down to watch it, and. Uh, I was really stunned. It's one of those movies where it was over and I kind of just sat there for a minute, probably rubbing my eyes and thinking, what the hell was that? And then I learned more about the movie, its history, particularly in the UK where Kubrick himself pulled it from release because after hearing that the film was inspiring real life violence and it was banned, it was banned in the UK until I think it was what? Two, maybe 2000. Yeah. Like yeah 2000. Something like that. Also a long time, and uh, and I've seen it a few times since 2007. Not that many times. Not as much as you know other Kubrick films that I love. But it's become a favorite of mine for sure. And but like other great, but also super dark, depressing movies. Random examples: of Blue Valentine or First Reformed from last year, or other Kubrick films like perhaps Lolita. They're movies that I think I think are brilliant, but I never feel like uh, watching them. Um, like if it wasn't for this pod, I can't, I'm not sure when I would have watched the movie, when I would have watched this again, maybe if if Malcolm McDowell passed away, but, uh, but might get into some of the reasons why it doesn't really crop up in my rotation, uh, as we go. Oh, I, I definitely think we're going to talk about that. We're going to have to, I mean, you can't Mm -hmm. review a film like this and not talk about some of the stuff that's in it. And, and obviously it's there to shock. And I want to go back to a point you made earlier about how much of a smaller film this was. I mean, 2001 cost eh, $10, 12000000 million to make, which for 1968 was a lot of money. I mean, that's, hmm. you know, $80 million, $90 million. That's a big, you know, thing. And it made 140 so it was, it was a huge film. This movie cost t- a little over $2 million bucks, you know. And, of course, it got, you know, 40 back or whatever. Which, so it was a mass hit. And that's amazing considering it had almost no European uh, distribution at all. You know, right. it, was, it was made in North America, and I can see in 1971, like we were in a change in cinema, and it, it was the decade of the anti-hero. You know, <laughs> you go back in the in the archives, and we've talked about some of them together. And Ron and I reviewed Dirty Harry, which is sort of like the one of the antithesis of that. But you've got stuff like French Connection and Death Wish, and all this, you know, just dark crap because. <laughs> you know, I mean, it's what it is, man. I mean, I was only alive for the back half of it, and it was it was a you know a little kid, so I don't really have a frame of reference for it. I'm more of an '80s kid, but like I know, you know, my older brother grew up in it, and he talked about being a kid, like seeing like lines at the gas station and just how crummy everything was, and everybody just thought everything hmm. sucks, and technology is going to ruin us all, you know, which is the theme Kubrick has never let go of, ever. Nope. Like he's been playing with this since Spartacus, <laughs> you know, really. Like mm-hmm. this, is, this is a constant theme. And you and I, when we reviewed Lolita, I remember talking about like how uncomfortable the movie made us. 
Yeah. You know, and for obvious reasons, because it's supposed to. Um, and this movie also has a lot of uncomfortable stuff in it. And knowing that in the book, the ages are much younger than what we actually get here. Um, I can only imagine how like people would have just lost their minds. And even Kubrick said, like, there's no way I'm filming a 15 year old doing that to a 10 year old. Like, that's yeah. just, like, I'm not an idiot, you know, like he, <laughs> he knew. And, and we'll get into all that, like you say, but yeah, this is not one that I don't know that I would have ever gone to as well. Cause again, you know, Mr. Hill telling me, eh, that ain't really for you. And then what little I picked up on through the years, I was like, I don't really know that I want to see that. I don't know that I need that in my life, you know, but we, we're doing it for this pod because it is part of the Stanley Kubrick uh, you know, lexicon and we want to talk about it. And so let's get into it a little bit. I want you to give folks a, a bit of a plot summary here in case they haven't seen this or don't know it in a while, don't know it you know, as well as other things, and then we can start talking about details of it. Very well. Uh, in a dystopian future England, Alex DeLarge, played by Malcolm McDowell, and his droogs spend their nights getting high at the Corova milk bar before embarking on a uh, little of the old ultraviolence. After he's jailed for bludgeoning a woman to death, Alex submits to a behavior modification technique known as the Ludovico technique uh, to earn his freedom. Uh, he's conditioned to abhor violence. Um, returned to the world defenseless, Alex becomes a victim of his prior victims. He's aided by a man he once attacked. However, that man uses Alex as a political pawn, but Alex throws himself out of a window. Uh, when he wakes up in the hospital, Alex is visited by the minister of the interior who promises to take care of him in return for his political support. Alex decides to play along. And in one final vision of fantasy in his head, we are left to wonder if he's been cured at all or if therapy has been reversed. Or something like that. I mean, yeah. <laughs> um, what we get is like five acts of things here. We get incredible mischief and violence from a layabout nothing mm -hmm. kid, you know, in a society that people are just sort of going through the motions to exist and there's no rules, there's no order, there's zero parenting. Education seems to be clearly, you know, selective choice at this point. And you get the old lesson of, you know, thieves are thick except when they turn on each other. Uh, and so, you know, which has been revisited time immemorial at this point. And then we get the, I guess, the sci-fi part, which is the revolutionary technique while also making a stab at is prison really, you know, rehabilitation or is it just conditioning? <laughs> and then we sit this guy loose back and he gets a little bit of the old comeuppance. Uh, mm -hmm. But as it all turns out, it's he's basically a pawn in between a couple of different political factions. And I don't know, there's a lot of Ludwig van Beethoven and a lot of really gross nudity and violence and weird shit Arama. And that's all I can do to say about this movie, man. I mean, it is, it is a jarring experience to have this laid upon you. And what gets me about it is, I mean, this movie is 48 years old or 38 years old. Yeah. 48 years old at the time we're recording this at this point. So it's nearly 50 years old and it looks incredible. Like the, oh, yeah. the, I mean, so I watched the version that was on Netflix and on my, you know, television. I mean, it looked amazing. And I thought, man, there's nothing like natural light and a good old film camera that just captures something that looks so real. Absolutely. And we're, yeah, that's a thing with Kubrick. He can't help it. You know, he started his career as a still photographer for, I think it was, was Look magazine. So he just 
he's all about he, he's all about framing and uh there's no you know he doesn't waste uh space if it, you know he, there's no accidents when it comes to the way he he fills a frame uh for instance the opening shot of the movie this incredibly long uh dolly back as we start on alex on his eyes he's looking right into the lens everyone else is looking away and that sets i mean I mean, Kubrick knows what he's doing, and uh, you know uh, Alex's mono, his monologuing uh, narration. I mean, uh, begins so right off the bat. Alex is looking directly into the audience. He's looking, and he spends the entire two hours getting right into your brain, into your into your soul, yeah. and uh, doesn't let go until you know, until even after the credits. No, I mean he's there to tell us the story. And there's even the bit at the end where he talks about, well, obviously I survived it because I'm here to tell this tale to <laughs> you, my brothers. And he keeps he uses this real. I don't understand the language here, and a part of this is just me being a dumb American and not knowing this stuff. But I'm told like this is a a combination of like British slang and Russian slang translated into English with a little bit of side rhyming, and I don't <laughs> know what the hell. You know, like he's speaking, he's speaking English that we can understand, but he's putting together phrases and words and combinations I had never heard of before. And I don't know that I've ever heard anywhere since. Well, it's, uh, it was definitely an invention of Burgess. I mean, it's, it's, it's sort of a, it's like a spin. It's, I think it's his idea of like a, a parody and a sort of evolution of Cockney rhyming slang. The Cockney rhyming mm. slang is something that it doesn't really make sense. Someone will say, let's have a butcher's. They mean butcher's as in butcher's hook. Hook rhymes with look. Like that kind of thing that doesn't make sense. Well, Clockwork Orange takes that just like uh, to the nth degree yeah. by throwing in other languages uh, in there. So, you know, you, so you, can, you, you can only kind of figure out what he's talking about when he says, come and get one in the Yarbos. Like, you know. Oh, yeah. I mean, he's got all kinds of just strange words for things. But in some ways, though, he talks like a little kid, too. <laughs> you know, we have the steaky eggies and all this kind of stuff. And it's I mean, and I think that's that's not, you know, uh, on a lark. That's done to show us that, like, while this child or person may be of, you know, age that where they should know better, they in some ways he does, in some way he doesn't. And there's a lot of, I mean, you know, Burgess talked a lot about that this movie or this book was about the idea of Christian free will and that, you know, to, to have forgiveness, you have to forgive a lot of very horrible things. And can you actually do it? You know, and then here's all the horrible things you have to forgive. And I don't really know that Kubrick got off on that and wanted to talk about that. But I do think he was interested in the idea of if you have a generation of people who are basically unparented and uneducated or, or educated only to like a certain standard. So they're just standardized, but they don't really know any, don't have anything that differentiates them. Then they're going to turn to the most darkest, hmm. worst fantasies they can come up with to try to get by. Because look at this world and how stark it is. I mean, I mean, it is very much like 2001 in that way. The few scenes we get outside, there's just trash laying around and just a few bare lights, right? And then when they're inside, everything's just kind of plain. Yeah, that, that's one thing I like about this movie is as a science fiction film, um, I always like I always like to think. I mean, I don't think Kubrick wasn't intending this at all. I like to think that it is set in the same world as 2001. But what 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 makes me think of it like uh, being a very apt movie for today is that scene where they're very early on where they're attacking a uh, you know some drunk in the street, mm-hmm. and the drunk is ranting about I can't remember exactly what he says but he's talking about how you know 
there's men on the moon and no attention paid to earthly law and order. And I think that we don't have men on the moon, but we have technology that people couldn't even come up with in sci-fi movies. Like if you just looked at the technology, it's like, oh, it's, it's amazing. We're doing amazing things in technology. But what's happening in society, I mean, you know, it depends on person to person who you ask. But it's like uh, this idea that in, like we have 2001, people are going in space. But, you know, the world is just, you know, just getting worse and worse. Well, yeah, it's just it's everybody's left to their own devices is what you get a sense of. And that the government that does exist really is only there to try to keep themselves in power, which, again, talk about something that hits close to home, at least in <laughs> America right now. And that's you know, whatever side you're on at this point. A lot of people feel that way. And that and that's also going on in Great Britain as well. I mean, right now that, you know, the Brexit talk and everything like that, it's a it's a a very dark world or what a lot of people have coined the dystopian world. We're living in it now, you know, in a lot of ways, because we have all this fantastic technology and this ability to, you know, do all this. I mean, Kurt, you and I are two time zones and thousands of miles away. And we've recorded Uh how many hours of this, you know, I mean, really (laughs) we can do all of that, but yet we still have like starving people and everything costs too damn much. And, you know, we have, we have problems. Right. And, Mm -hmm. I think in a lot of ways, and I think it's neat that you put it like that. I've never thought about this being in the same world as like 2001, but that totally works and would right. explain why these guys would go on space missions for years to get the yeah. hell away <laughs> from all of that. I mean, uh, because why would you stay, right? Like, what's what's the point? Oh yeah, it's like you know, Earth's, it's a, that's a common thing in sci-fi. I mean, that's in that's in Blade Runner. Is uh, we don't get yeah. to see what's going on off-world, but they're constantly advertising go to the off-world colonies because it's you know if you can afford it, it's way better than Earth. Yeah, that was a Philip K. Dick staple, right? Oh yeah, you're all, and which was just his metaphor for everybody chasing the thing that you you really have no business being around or going for, but go <laughs> for it anyway, right? Uh, and and that's what's happening. So I I don't know. I think it's neat. It's an interesting introduction to the idea of ultraviolence and oh, yeah. that is a, a concept that is a, is a well-used term in my opinion i mean we we get robbery we get beatings we get sexual assault of all manner and it's all done in like these playful jokey song and heart they're just doing it for nothing like that's the thing is he ultimately has a falling out with his you know his droogs because they want to go after like a big score and he's just like eh you know he just wants to throw some change in a bucket play with the snake and listen to the Ludwig <laughs> van like this guy has no motivation whatsoever to do anything other than just mm, create complete mayhem everywhere he goes so as a dangerous psychopath yeah i put this guy right up there with like Hannibal Lecter and any of these other, you know, fictional creations we've, we've lorded onto the screen. Absolutely. I mean, that's kind of a thing about this character is, is he, is he, it just, is he just, uh, you know, is, is he a kid acting out or is he, though some of this, his monologues and stuff makes me think he's totally self-aware and is just genuinely, uh, malicious and pure evil. Like I love, I love some, some of these visions we see of his, for whatever reason, he has a vision of man. I'd love to be one of the centurions that was whipping Christ down the right. street. It's like only yeah. the it's like I've never only the most vicious person would even think of that and think that that was a that that that'd be cool. Yeah, I mean, I mean the, we, we talk about it, and really, what is at the center of a lot of Alex's issues are he is, has a real hang up with sex and violence being equated to one another. For hmm. whatever reason, those things have have cross multiplied in his brain to the point that. 
one feeds the other and it's almost like one's not as good if the other's not there either. And so, you know, at, at this pivotal moment in Christian history, this is when he's in prison. We're kind of all over the place, but it's a good time to bring it up. He's, he's at the crucifixion. What is he thinking about? Ripping clothes off women and beating the hell out of them with a whip as a centurion. Why? Because that's just the kind of weird shit this guy gets off of, you know, and, and what Kubrick is forcing us to do is, and you got to remember too, this is the 1970s, so we're coming out of the summer of love and the 60s and all this stuff, and nudity on film is a new thing, right? And Kubrick presents us with an incredible amount of very uh, revealing poses, particularly of, of the females in this movie, but not, not, not only just them, McDowell's naked for about a third of it too, oh, right? Sure. There's a lot of nudity, nudity, but absolutely none of it. Is played to be titillating or arousing or anything. It is, it is made to do like what the Ludovico technique is supposed to do to Alex. It's supposed to make us so shocked by it that we can't possibly find any sort of enjoyment in it. Oh, absolutely. I think Kubrick was probably completely aware of that at the time that he knew he was making, he, you know, with the amount of nudity he was putting in, he knew what he was doing. He knew how uncomfortable that would make people. He knew. He was going to make a movie that was going to mess with people's brains in in various ways, and I don't think you get much more mind melting, uh, if that's the right phrase, than a crucial scene that comes. I, I remember watching the movie the other, uh, you know, it was a couple of weeks ago when I last watched it, and we get to the scene where we come to the singing in the rain bit, and I'm looking yeah. at my watch, and I'm like, it didn't, it never occurred to me that's less than 15 minutes into the movie when we get to that. And I think that is like arguably the the most striking scene in the film, and it's so early on. You have so little time to adjust to this world Kubrick has, and like while you're in the middle of adjusting, he throws you this scene that didn't have to be in a sci-fi movie. They could have put that in you know in a modern day movie. And that scene, what I love is the first ten minutes of this movie is done like uh, you know when they have that fight scene with the gang. Uh, and then, then Alex is speeding down the road in a sports car going 100 miles an hour. The movie has this very breakneck speed. And then we get to this house and we cut to the inside of the house. You know, we're not from Alex's POV. We're just someone else's POV. And it goes so still and quiet. The camera is so slow. And the doorbell rings and the writer is so slow. It just it strikes me how slow and calm. He's like, who on earth could that be? And Alex, uh, you know, again, pretty such a malicious thing to do and such a disgusting thing is to play on the sympathy and kindness he does it and he does it twice he says there's an accident i need to use your phone because he it's he's playing off the sympathy he knows nice people they'll let you use the phone and that'll make them open the door and that gets us you know to kubrick every every kubrick movie has at least one scene or sometimes, you know, four or five, but uh, uh, scenes that are just yeah. iconic, that will live on forever. You know, it, it, whether it's a certain line, an image, you just, you know, you will just, you'll, you'll never forget it. And that is the singing in the rain bit, which was apparently, yeah. as I understand it, I hear different stories. Apparently, the scene was always meant to be that they go into the house and they, they attack this couple. Uh, but apparently the idea of it, of the singing was improvised on the day. That Kubrick was like, you know, there's something's missing in this scene. And he says to uh, Malcolm, he says, can you dance? And apparently, you know, uh, Malcolm McDowell, ever the thespian, just goes, can I dance? And he just starts singing and dancing, singing in the rain. And Kubrick started laughing. He said, that's hilarious. 
And he said, we got to put that in the movie. And that just, that speaks to the madness and genius of Kubrick that he's like, you know, Al, Malcolm McDowell is basically, you know, like putting this f- idea forth of how about, you know, a show tune in a rape scene. And Kubrick's thought is that's terrific. We absolutely have to do that in 1971. So Kubrick, right. he shoots the scene. As soon as they were done, he, he calls his agent or his managers and he buys the rights to the song, like probably $50,000 American at the time that night. And he puts it in the movie. And that song, as far as songs go, this is Hollywood royalty here. This would be like if he used Somewhere Over the Rainbow from Wizard of Oz in a scene like this. And before watching the movie for this pod, last time I watched it was a few years ago uh, with my dad. I was at home. There was a Kubrick marathon on TV. And me and my dad, there was, we watched Dr. Strange Love 2001 and this. The night before this, by pure chance, I had just watched Singing in the Rain for the first time. <laughs> and it had become one of my favorite movies. It's an absolute gem. And then to watch A Clockwork Orange the night after is so insane. It was so surreal. Um, and apparently that's, that, that surrealism carried on into real life because Malcolm McDowell was at some Hollywood function and he bumped into Gene Kelly. He said, hey, Gene Kelly. And Gene Kelly was very dismissive and just sure like, he yeah, hey. Because like, this is like, like Gene Kelly, like that move, like that is like. That's his, you know, uh, like that's like Gene Kelly's definitive cinematic scene is that scene. And then, then I can't imagine what was going in his head when he saw that movie because you don't see that coming. And he must have been just sick to his stomach. But, but, but just that scene is just up there with the best of iconic Kubrick up there with riding the bomb in, uh, in Dr. Strangelove or what have you. And just the contrast of this golden age Hollywood MGM show tune, the lyrics stand out to me. Like lyrics about, you know, having a good time despite bad surroundings. Like the lyric, a song. song. I mean, it's it's about being love struck and you you don't care that you're getting rained on. You're just dancing and singing down the street in the rain. I mean, that's, that's the ironic music part of this. And poor Adrian Curry. I mean, 70 something takes of this she had to do. And apparently she was game and just said, you know, go for it. But like most women or actors or anybody that had to work for Kubrick ever at some point, it's like, well, is this ever going to be enough for you? Uh, because I, and the thing is though, and what, what I, you know, of course film lore is what we see is like a cobbled together version of like 20 of those takes. And the, just going away from the subject matter for a second, the film grammar part of it is you never see a single cut. Like it is amazing how seamless this all blends together. And you're right. It, it, I think part of it is the fact that we as an audience get hypnotized by this unassuming fun little song. And if we just stop for a second, go, wait, what is, what is he doing with the scissors? And you just start watching what's going on and the, the horrible acts that are happening from him and these other men uh, to this woman and this this uh, man in their home, no less. It was, it's horrible. I mean, it is a horror movie in the truest sense, what's going on. And that's the weird part about this movie, because it is confronting you with horrible images and things that you know are absolutely abhorrent. But you're asked to ask yourself, why are these things occurring? What's the purpose? And whose fault is it really? And it's not as cut and dry as to say, well, it's the bad guy's fault, right? Because in the end, it's sort of debatable as who really was the bad guy, who made who, right? Yeah, a little bit. I I, I like to think Kubrick in that scene, 
I don't, I wouldn't say he succeeded entirely, but I think like, like I said, he was trying to mess with an audience's head cause he's trying to mix, you know, this brutal violence and some, one of the most terrifying kinds of violence, like a home invasion, this idea that you're, excuse me, like, like, like the psychos, like the shower scene in psycho, this idea that you're not safe in, in your, in, in your own shower. Like, that's what this scene is. Like, you know, I'd say like, you, know, you can't even be safe in your own home. You open the door the wrong time. Some guy's going to walk in and do that too. And that's kind of an extra thing is like, you know, a little tidbit is there is that it's very, it seems to me that there like this added uh, malice of it is that he makes the husband watch. Like, like he has one guy holding him down, making him watch that scene. It's interesting for the, you know, the second half is, Again, playing with the you know the the audience's sympathies is that on paper it totally justifies what the writer ends up doing to Alex, and yet the way Kubrick plays it, you wonder if he's going too far. But that's again that's Kubrick, you know, just you know messing with your head. If you want to have this society where everything is absolutely cut and dry to this, and we just want to ignore all of our problems and focus on all the cool new shit that we have, this is what you get. You know, is that. Yes, we know it's wrong because maybe deep morally we do, but do we even trust that? Because uh, look at the people in charge. Like, there's only one person in the whole film that I think has any kind of moral justification, and that's the priest in prison who seems to hmm. actually, you know, care that there's some rehabilitation going on. And I have to, I had to catch myself with modern sensibilities, you know, being cynical and guessing like, is this precept to something? But I think if you just watch it for what it is, like he comes off as like an actually genuinely cared person, but he's just another idiot that gets duped by Alex, <laughs> you know, because that's the thing. Like Alex is the ultimate psycho, right? Like he is, he's charming and he's smart and he's relatively strong and he's absolutely friggin' ruthless. You know, I mean, he'll pull out a knife and cut his own friend's hand and go take a beer and say that no, we're good, right? You know, I mean, like, what what a madman, right? I mean, that's what's going on all while, I mean, again, he's just dismissive of his whole family and all this, and all this stuff happens, right, to set up the scene. And you're right, Kurt, that's the thing that's jarring about this is in the first 20 minutes of it, you're introduced to a language you don't know in a world you can't imagine and people that you, you're obviously meant to follow this character and he is doing horrible stuff that you're having to reconcile with all before you even meet his family, right? Yeah. And and then, I mean, you get his family who seem like they're at least 60 years older than him, hmm. right? Which I guess yeah. that's, I mean, that, that could also just be a times thing. Like, I remember thinking, like, when my parents were 40, like, God, my parents are old. And now I'm like, that ain't that old, you know? <laughs> so I've been 40 for a while now. But yeah, I guess that maybe is the, the uh, hubris of youth is that you, you always assume that. But look at the way the authority figures treat him. Nobody holds him responsible for anything. Even the friggin' truancy officer who has that incredibly awkward conversation with him and ends up hitting <laughs> him in the nuts. And I was like, I, I get why this world is so screwed up if these are the people that are running it. Oh, yeah, that, that whole section where we come to Alex's house. Now, they never say what his age is, but it, I wonder if it's meant to be this unbelievable jaw-dropping surprise that this is a guy – who is living at home and like they're talking about him. Like, are you going to go to school today? Like he's this, like they don't say he's 15, but they, they suggest that, you know, at the oldest he's 18. He's, he is a teenager. Um, like I could buy Al, I could buy Malcolm McDowell as a, you know, a 19 year old maybe, but I, I love the depiction of his parents. They are completely oblivious 
to Alex's life, deliberately or not, but they don't have a clue no. um, what he's up to. And I love that character of this uh, Deltoid, Alex's probation officer, keeping a watchful eye on him. He can't prove it, but he knows what Alex is up to at night and despises him. Um, and I love that that uh, uh, <laughs> that actor, Aubrey Morris, as the actor's name. And I just love this character. He's so one of the he's one of the part of the uh, the characters of this movie are just amped up, like just like ten percent past the way real people are. He is so over the top. The way you know, just like <laughs> the way you know, yes, Alex. It's, it's very, very creepy, and he's meant to be, you know, the quote-unquote, you know, uh, good guy. The reading I had on that, just to put a modern equivalency to it, if you've seen any of the Hunger Games movies and the character Stanley Tucci is playing, I swear <laughs> he's ripping this off. Like, I don't know that he would ever admit to it, sure. but I could bet Tucci's like, you know what, I'm just going to play it like that. Because he, I mean, he looks the same way. He has the same hmm. kind of accents. And in the book, that character's pretty flamboyant and wild. Yes, I've read the Hunger Games books. But <laughs> he, and he's pretty much like what Tucci is. But I almost, reading the book now, too, I'm like, mm, that was kind of like a ripoff of the, the Clockwork Orange guy at Deltoid <laughs> here. Because he just, I mean, it just seems like that. And I started to think about it, like, how many times have I seen that character in other things? Think about the sheriff or the, the trooper or whatever, the Texas Mountie, at the beginning of From Dust Till Dawn. You know, Michael <laughs> Parks, he's, he's just in the, he's in there talking to John Hawks in the liquor store for like 35 minutes because that's a Tarantino thing, right? And I'm sitting there going, like, it's the same kind of conversation. Like, we've seen this repeated over and over again. And again, it's this, these people who are in charge, who are absolutely in charge of jack shit. <laughs> yeah, trying to prove their authority and desperate to, you know, uh, get their their moment in the spotlight of of, of thwarting evil. So yeah, from dust till dawn, like he's all about we're going to get these bastards, and he gets his head blown off like the second he's done talking. Right. Well, I mean, and even Deltoid later, like in the prison scene when they finally arrested Alex, but we'll talk about how he gets arrested in a minute. But I mean, he does like one of the most weirdly despicable things ever. I mean, he absolutely hawks a straight loogie on this guy's face. And I'm like, and I'm in my head, I'm going, this is a Kubrick movie. So that probably happened 48 times. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm like, what? And poor Malcolm McDowell. I mean, he must've just really been like, sure, whatever, <laughs> you know, at this point in his career. I mean, cause I mean, it's hard to think about it. He's 27 in this movie. He'd been acting yeah. for like a decade at this point. And, and he's, still gone on and acted, you know, years and years beyond too. And I just wonder like, has he ever had to do anything that many times in a row that was that disgusting or awful? And then I think about some of the movies he's been in and I'm like, yeah, probably so. Cause he did a Rob Zombie film or three or four of them. So yeah. You know. Yeah. I mean, it's, but no, that's, I mean, what a weird end though. Right. Well, we got to talk about how he gets arrested. Cause I've already set it up. Like he, he, his guys want to go for bigger scores. He's like, Nope, we're not doing that. That's not how it's going to go. And they're just walking down the street uh, and he just decides it's time to get the boys in line, and he just throws one in the water and starts beating the hell out of the other ones with a cane, cuts one of them, and then they go out for a beer, you know, because yeah. that's just what you do. Oh, yeah, yeah that, that's a great scene, and that's uh, part of Kubrick's, you know, his visual styles. For whatever reason, he chooses to film it in extreme uh, slow motion, um, and it just adds to the, 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 the it just adds to the creepiness the huge like that, that that image of that huge smile on Alex's face as he as he reaches extends his hand to uh, to dim saying you know go ahead take my hand and as he takes his hand you know slices the top of his hand with a knife and that, yeah like there's a tension in the first half before he goes into jail in in every scene because you know like right off the bat we see what this guy is capable of physically 
and it just makes it, it adds tension in every scene. Even that scene where Deltoid's in his, you know, in his, uh, in his in his bedroom. You know, Alex, he's only in his underwear, but we still think like if, if Alex really wanted to, he could probably tear this guy's head off. Right, and I mean, we'll see how how good he, or how violent he can be. Good he is in a fight later, but all of this is to set up again the idea that well, if you turn on people enough. They'll do one of two things. Either they fall in line or they realize we don't need you and they're <laughs> going to turn on him. And that's exactly what happens. You know, they, they find a way to turn on him at their next uh, big score, right? Because they're basically just going to do the same thing again. They're going to confront the homeowner. You know, they're, they're, they can't get let into the house. So Alex jumps in through a, a second floor window and they're fighting. And I mean, the woman comes at him with a bust of Beethoven, and his response is to grab this huge phallus <laughs> that's, I mean, and this is Kubrick, like, making fun of modern art. It's got to be. And he basically beats her to death with it. Like, he doesn't know he's beating her to death with it at the time. He just thinks he's knocking her out. But he beats her with this huge ceramic penis, which is such a, I mean, again, it's just shoving it in your face how sex and violence are the same thing in this psycho's mind. Oh yeah, and that's that's part of the world Kubrick creates, and in, in, in a lot of the art direction is um, uh, well, not the art direction, but cer- there's certain elements where the, this, the, 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 like in, at least in this version of London, how sort of sexual imagery is so uh, prevalent and like in your face, like when there's a scene where Alex is in a record store and he's ch- chatting up these two girls, and they're eating these lollipops that are blatantly uh, uh, phalluses. Mm-hmm. And it's like that's I think that's I don't I don't know if that's if that's Burgess or if that's Kubrick saying this is you know that's well, this I mean, is acor- according to to Burgess and Kubrick that that's just part of the book and just part mm. of the whole story and everything here. But seeing it visually versus reading it, it's it's just different yeah. things, you know. I mean, it's it, it's a different medium completely. And I think again, I think back to this time and what the world was like, and I cannot imagine what people were thinking when they. They were sitting in a theater, munching on some popcorn, and then this huge ceramic dick starts <laughs> to murder this woman. I mean, really, like it's—I'm chuckling, but I'm also going, "How horrible could this have been?" And I'm beginning to add, and this is where I really start to ask, like, what is the point of all of this if you're just going to offend? Like, this is the thing that, like, I, it's one of the reasons I turned on Kevin Smith movies because at some point it just felt like, how many times can you just say the same thing over and over again? <laughs> it's something that turned me off of Tarantino movies. Was that how long can we possibly extend the same violent shit over and over again? <laughs> and feeling like we're just remaking Reservoir Dogs every time we make a movie with them. And and I'm just I, I, mean, I just get to a point where it's like and same with Rob Zombie. At some point, stop grinding my face in the mud and let's like <laughs> have something to say. But I don't. I really don't think like there's that much to say until we get to the prison part. Like we have to go through this thirty minutes of hell, really, to get to what I feel like is the the better, more interesting part of the movie. And I wonder, hmm. could you have got us there a different way without all of this stuff that really is is hard to watch? Well, it's uh, it's interesting you saying that the second half is is better. Uh, I, like, there, there's, you know, arguably it might be. Um, one thing I like about this movie is that Kubrick does this a couple times, where you have distinct lines of you got your first half or your second half. Like Full Metal Jacket does that, where the first half is a completely different movie yeah. than the second half, and that similar to a uh, Clockwork Orange, where like you know, this like clock. I mean, Alex Large being on that villains list is because of the uh, just you know the first act 
uh, of this movie. And it's, it is, it is very extreme and extremely uncomfortable, but, but I think it needs to be, you need to see the most malicious evil bastard possible in order to help start messing with your brain as far as sympathies go as, as, as the movies, as the movie goes on. Cause the worse he is, the weirder you're going to feel any chance you feel sorry for him. Oh, absolutely. And I'm watching this in 2019 in the, what I call this true crime wave that we're in in popular culture right now. And we've <laughs> been writing it for several years now. And it's, I mean, it's podcasts, it's documentary shows, it's movies getting made about stuff we've known answers to long ago. I mean, they just came up with a new Ted Bundy, you know, movie that's on, uh, Netflix, and it's, it's really good. Zach Efron's really good in it. Lily Collins is good in it as well. And it's telling a story that if you know the Ted Bundy story, you know this. It's not anything new, but a newer audience needs to see it. And and I'm but I'm wondering like what? Why are we obsessed with this kind of stuff? It's the same kind of sensibilities that Kubrick and Burgess are making comment on here. Like we're so obsessed with all this evil shit, but we want to act like. It's all okay, right? Because we, we hang yeah. up our religious paintings and all that. And what has happened in the future here, and you brought it up. I mean, you've got like religious murals in the back and there's a bunch of like phalluses painted on them. And, you know, it's, it's, <laughs> it's grotesque, right? And it's, def it's, uh, defaced because if everything's okay, then there's nothing to, you know, morally regulate anything, right? And <laughs> while that sounds on, paper like okay yeah everybody's free and they have those choice if you give people all this ultimate free choice right what do they do with it and i think what burgess and kubrick are saying is they do the most awful possible things with it they either ignore the problems in front of them or they have people who act on those impulses right and that's really what's happening here like alex's parents and his friends and everybody around him know what is going on, but they're just not doing anything about it and he is just acting on every id impulse he's got yeah, that's that's the thing about this movie. I think Burgess was more about this than Kubrick, but Burgess said the whole point of like the theme of Clockwork Orange is free will. Like, and uh, you know, I, I never heard Burgess say this, but I like to think Alex. He's the he is absolutely the embodiment of of, of free will in, but in the worst way. He is what happened. Like he, you know, this is a guy who will do anything he wants whenever he wants whether it's whether it's you know uh, having a snake in your in your in your drawer listening to Logwood van or you know doing a home invasion he just does anything that comes to mind and uh, you know a theme of the movie is you know uh, is taking away someone's free will which we're getting to yeah and so Alex goes to prison and what, the thing about the whole prison scene, it's not the trial that I'm really interested in. It's when he goes to prison and he's getting checked in, Kubrick takes a good 10 minutes to go through this processing part, yeah. right? And it's, it is, it is again, it's cold, it's sterile, it is somebody who refused to follow the rules, who can do the whole fake yes sir, no sir thing, but now has to actually follow the rules, and there's somebody who's going to keep him in line to do it. I love this, this, uh, you know, warden, chief officer, whatever we call him here. And I feel like I got like a big Peter Sellers off this guy. And I couldn't find anything to say hmm. if maybe he was up for the role, but I feel like he's doing a Sellers in this. Hmm. Oh, yeah. Michael Bates is his name. And yeah, he plays Barnes, the prison guard. And he just makes me think of Monty Python. Like, I, it's, to me, I look at him and I see John Cleese. Like, uh, I guess this was like right when Monty Python was happening. But if this was 10 years later, you would get, I think you would get John Cleese to play this guy. And yeah, this idea of, you know, Alex is this petulant kid and here comes this guy who probably hates kids. He hates Alex. He, he knows what he did. And uh, he's very 
very English as far as you know, um, being uh, what's the word? Like it's being very, 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 cor- very yeah, exactly. and, and it's all very sharp. It's like you saw, you know. And he's got these oh, yeah. like hard steps and all this stuff. It's it's almost a little uh, German in there too, uh, a little but bit. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, you you had to feel it in there, right? Oh yeah, and it's uh, yeah. He's like you know, like that great bit where uh, what is it? He's, he's taking out his pen. And, he, and Alex just kind of tosses it on the desk, and he just tells him, "Pick it up and put it down properly." And it's like you know, this is the kind of like this, and obviously this is a kind of order Alex has probably never had to deal with in his life. Can we talk about the fact too that he gets fourteen years in prison for murdering somebody? I mean, even if it was second degree murder, or he gets fourteen years in prison. It's got to be mean, because it, it's a youth crime. Yeah, right. And and that's what I'm looking at. I'm going like, holy cow! But again. I mean, that's a discussion happening today. If people commit capital crimes in their youth, should they be in prison the rest of their lives? Does it do any good? Except, you know, this is, I mean, again, this is a 50 year old movie that's talking about, and a book that's even older than that, talking about stuff we're dealing with still now, right? Because Absolutely. again, if we go back to the theory that people are just people and the problems just remanifest in lots of different ways, this isn't a surprise. But anyway, we, we know that. But uh, yeah, the, uh, I mean, I said before that uh, for me, the movie picked up and I hooked into it in the second act because I was just so turned off by everything in the first act. And I think that was the point. I think you're supposed to be turned off to it, or at least I, you know, that was my reading of it. But now I'm into the, well, so what happens to somebody like this? Like, what can we do for them? Because he's clearly still a wacko, right? And even in prison, he's still out of his mind. And again, he's having, you know, crucifixion sex narratives in his head. <laughs> Right. While he's acting like he's being a pious little, you know, reformed boy. And what he figures out is he can sit near the window where the sun is if he pretends to read the Bible more often. And he's obviously like picked up enough to learn it. Right. Because it's a good psychopath thing. Right. They act like they give you the answers that they think you want to hear so that they can gain favor. Oh, exactly. I mean, that's like that's how he you know breaks into a house, you know, telling people something that. You know, get a response that he has in mind. It's eliciting sympathy. That's the idea. Absolutely. Elicit sympathy and then you reel in the, the bait. Oh, for sure. Yeah. Cause yeah, we're getting towards, uh, when he, you know, he, when Alec, the idea of Alex, you know, telling people what they want to hear, you know, he bumps into a politician. Uh, he knows, it's like he knows exactly what to say because he hears about, well, that's right. He, the priest tell, I think it's the priest that tells him that there's a chance for, uh, uh, freedom. And the, right. yeah, the way Alex plays it so much, it's like, oh yeah, I want to, I want to become a better person. Really, Alex is just like, you know, this will be a free ticket back home, right? Exactly. So I can get out of here and do what I want. And uh, the way he hears about it is, you know, it's it's prison talk. People are just talking in the, you know, yard right. here and there. He hears about it, and the thing about this prison, like they're all in uniforms. It's like schoolboy uniforms or something. Oh yeah. But he's in there with hardened criminals, but we never see him like getting attacked or having to shiv somebody or any of that stuff. Like he just seems to blend right through. And it's, I think it's neat the fact that, again, a kid who seemed to buck every bit of order in his life adapts pretty good to order when he has to, right? Because I think, again, if you read it beneath, you know, it's because he's just doing that so that he can get where he wants to get, which is ultimately freedom. And when the politicians walking around talking about looking for, you know, volunteers for this experimental technique, he overhears all this. And of course he's going to go like, Oh, I can totally do that. You know, and he, <laughs> he plays right into their hands. Oh yeah. And I love, I love how, you know, when uh, he's asked, what do you, what are you in for? Uh, he says the accidental killing of a person. Yeah. 
And Barnes is immediately like, he murdered someone in her own house. Yeah. You know, like he was like, no, you're not getting away with that. No. And yeah, the, 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 yeah, that comes to the, this politician. I can't remember the character's name, but the like this interior minister guy. Um, he's talking about. I think he might be. Maybe he's talking to his underlings, but he's talking about this entire technique. The entire second half of the movie is is a maybe well intentioned but poorly conceived attempt to reduce crime. Uh, to get re- reduced crime statistics and uh, free up overcrowded prisons. So yeah. really, and that this it's an politician, he's, he's, decision more than it is a, a social decision. Absolutely, this politician yeah. he's trying to make it sound like, oh, I'm I'm doing this, you know, to help the better the people. Really, it's just like you know, this will. I think he, they're even talking about it's like you know the way the government's going, they're going to vote us out, so we better come up with something, you know, to to, to please the the mob. Yeah, I would, I would again. I'm listening to this going like. Wow, this all rings so close to home nowadays bit, yeah. for us. I mean, really, it's it's the desperate attempt to like, okay, what kind of crazy legislation can I get my base to get behind here right before an election? Okay, uh-huh. you got to be tough on crime. Well, okay, so this is their their great experiment, and I think like another iconic scene and one of the the great iconic images is when they strap him in this chair in a theater oh, yeah. and peel his eyes back and. They basically make him watch just violent stuff over and over again until he becomes not desensitized to it, but where it makes him physically ill to try to manifest it on his own anymore. Which is, I mean, that's a weird kind of aversion therapy, right? Like, that's what this is talking about. Oh, yeah, it's, to- it's totally aversion therapy. It's, um, they don't really say that's what they're doing, but there's like, uh, the, as his eyes are peeled back, there's a man who's dropping um, droplets into his eyes. Now, realistically, what they're doing is because Malcolm McDowell, your eyes need to be moistened. And you can't, if you can't blink, you literally need droplets put on your eyes. But I think what that is is that psychotropic drugs because that mm. – you know, like you can put like, – that's, that's a very quick way to the brain is you know, drugs via, liquid drugs via the eye. And yeah, this, this aversion therapy of you know, getting a physical reaction to the desire – for violence on paper, uh, maybe a good idea. And this is where the movie starts to take a turn where Alex really starts to suffer, where the movie becomes not about so much about Alex's actions, but about how sometimes the law, the government, whatever authority can be just as evil intentionally or not as the people who are, uh, deliberately evil, uh, deliberately evil. Right. Well, I mean, he's in prison for doing something despicable and abhorrent, right? And their answer to that is to do despicable and abhorrent things to him to try to, like, shock his brain out of it. Which, while the technique seems really radical and weird, that's also a statement about, like, prison institutionalizes some people. Like, there is no rehabilitation. They just learn how to operate in a in a very contained moment. But they're also still doing a lot of very legal stuff. And the first thing that you know, many of them do when they get out is what? react badly to the the open environment again and they want to get right back in right or they're never changed to begin with and they're just faking it and they go right back right but that's that's the whole comment on the prison system here is that and and you made it right the ministry of the interior is talking about how like we made a lot of money off of having people in jail but now we got too many of them (laughs) so we got to get rid of it right because we can't build more prisons because there ain't enough money for that because that costs money so we don't spend anymore so we got to do is turn some of these people out so we need something that the uh, you know the masses will buy as a good idea 
right? So we're going to take this guy. We're just, we're going to totally, you know, you know, brainwash him basically to be a good person now because there's good in him, right? And so that's what they're selling here, and that's what you know Alex signs up for and buys. My question to you is because they they run him through a test. I mean, they you know bring the half naked dancer woman out for <laughs> him to do whatever with, and he gets physically ill and can't can't take it or whatever. Is he putting on there? You think? Because he knows that's the reaction he's supposed to give so that he can get back out? Or do you think he's legitimately temporarily changed? Oh, no, I think uh, it's a legit – I think it's a legit reaction. Um, it's, it's a, I mean, it's a very bizarre scene, just that, this idea of the – you know, the, the, the on paper what they're doing is, you know, we're going to put a situation where he would want to attack a young girl in front of this crowd – um, but I think it, I think what we are seeing is you know situations where he normally would just act on his impulses and his sexual urges and or or physically defending himself, and we just see that he can't. Um, but I think his discomfort is showing that he genuinely wants to, and that's the whole thing with this uh, this this Ludovico technique. Now this is the movie it becomes something uh, a particular kind of sci-fi. I'm a fan of, which is like sci-fi crime prevention, whether that's Minority Report or RoboCop, and I always think, or a Scanner Darkly, um, and I definitely think of a Clockwork Orange. This idea of it's an incredibly, it's very deep philosophical thing. Mm-hmm. Of on paper, it's we, if it worked ideally, it would make a person. <laughs> they're trying to make a person not want to commit crimes. Um, it's, but that's not what's what's happening. What they're doing is they're making it so physically or mentally they are now blocked and unable to go through with it. But I, Alex never doesn't want to not do it. He just knows think, he oh, yeah. can't. I mean, they played around with this on Buffy the Vampire Slayer one season, and it's a terrible idea. But they put a chip in a vampire's head, so every time he tries to bite somebody, he gets an electric shock. Right. Yeah. And so it's the same idea. It's like, well, you know, he'll still want to do it, but he can't do it anymore. And maybe that'll make them turn good when really only one of them ever turned good from that. The rest of them just picked up bats or swords or what the hell ever. <laughs> right. And, and I never put those together because, again, I didn't watch this until, you know, or recently. But watching it now and still being a Buffy fan, I'm going like, huh, this is the initiative in season four. Well, that was a horrible idea there, too. Yeah. And it, yeah, it, it, it's a terrible idea because it's not it, like psychologically it's got to be hell for Alex because, it, again, it doesn't take away the desire. It just takes away right. the ability. So in his right. head, he's think he's, he's just he's getting more and more depressed about how badly he wants to do something, but he physically can't. Yeah, I mean, it's it's the same kind of things that I, well, I mean, there's all kinds of different techniques to this. Right. And uh I read an interesting commentary that said this is the, the idea behind this was the idea of you, you made eunuchs back in the day because they would be in charge of the harem. And the reason you made them eunuchs is so you kind of removed their ability to do anything about all the <laughs> beautiful women they were around all the time. Right. But what, you know, the Egyptians and everybody else realized later on was like, well, some of them sort of took to that and, and, you know, dealt with it just fine as they're a lot in life. There's a lot of them that the, the mind still had the same desire, whether the ability to act upon it was there or not. So they became hmm. really cruel, vicious people. Right. And so then that's again why that's a bad idea. 
you know, and then, you know, some eunuchs make it all the way up into high government and then get betrayed and turned into dragon meat real quick, too, as we, as we learned very recently on HBO. Uh-huh. <laughs> but, but really, I mean, it's the same idea, right? It's like, well, we'll just, we'll just, you know, we'll just remove the glitch and it'll fix itself, right? That's, and that's, and again, the comment on the government or society wanting the government to just, just fix it, just make an answer and get to the end of it. And I don't, I don't want to know the gory details. Just fix it, you know, and reality, you can't, the, some of this stuff you can't fix. You know, there's some people that are just bad. And that, and that goes against the idea again of, um, being able to control free will while at the same time exploiting the idea of, well, if free will is a real thing, can you actually forgive someone for the horrible things that they do? And what we'll find in the third act is that no, you cannot is what Kubrick is saying. Yeah. Because when we meet Mr. Alexander again, he is most definitely not in a forgiving mood. No, and uh, well, the, the 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 politician in this this elaborate demonstration, which is uh, so surreal, I always remember there's the image of the naked woman taking her bows and the audience applauding. I love when we cut to the the prison guard is he's so baffled by this, like he's clearly a guy who's he's a little bit more from the real world, and he you know he can't believe what he's watching. But I love when the guy's kicking the shit out of Alex, he just starts laughing because he's like he's like I I've been wanting to do this you know for the whole two years he's been in jail or however however long it is. Um, and the politician, he makes this speech again, where it's like it, only on paper does it does it work. He says, I can't remember exactly what he says, but by being, he's compelled towards good by being repelled from evil. And it's like that's right. like it's such a politician uh, BS thing. It's like that's not exactly. how crime works. <laughs> no, and it's not how you deter crime either. Like this idea that like it will deter. It's the same thing that if you tell people like. You know, no, uh, I don't know. If, if you tell people they can't have something, what does that immediately make you want? Yeah. The thing. If I tell you, Kurt, you cannot have any coffee tomorrow, what's the first thing you're going to be thinking about when you wake up? Friggin' exactly. coffee, right? Yeah. So it, it, the idea of taking something away and acting like it doesn't exist anymore is not a realistic answer to anything, right? It's not, especially not a realistic answer to crime. Right. It may get people out of prison that you don't want to, you know, pay to be in prison anymore, but you're just turning people back out on the streets that have nothing left to do. And then what happens to him is he goes back home and like his parents have rented out his room. You know, like yeah. they have completely moved on from him. He's friggin' homeless. He can't do anything for himself, right? So he's he he runs into the bum again and the bum and like his bum gang decide to get a little comeuppance on this dude, right? Because he would remember him that well, right? I guess you oh, would yeah. if you remember somebody kicked your ass. So <laughs> they beat the crap out of this poor kid, right? And he winds up in the pouring rain on the doorstep of the man whose house he first attacked in the you know the opening scenes. You know, because life is a big circle, right? And it's a dark one. Oh, yeah. Like this... The, his release from prison, one thing that stands out to me is that they're, the, the government, the prison, absolutely no uh, follow-up program. They just say, you're free to go, and they don't yeah, you know, not like check good. in in a week to see how you're doing. Here's, you yeah. know, here's an apartment. It's just, no, you're, you know, you're quote-unquote free to go. And uh, I, I love this scene of, of uh, Alex's parents, you know, incapable of expressing – that they just would rather not him being being part of his life because clearly you know they probably were at the trial and they heard, you know, the things he did. They really don't like uh, any good parent probably might want to you know shun their child after that. And I love this guy, the lodger, very blunt. He hates Alex probably you know as much as anybody, 
And I love how Alex tries to take a swing at him, and he and he can't. Like again, clearly he wants yeah. to, you know, rip this guy's head off. I love how blunt and uh, down to earth his reaction is. He's just like, "That's disgusting. It's enough to put you off your food." And yeah, it's it, you know such a bizarre uh, crime prevention technique. And yeah, but this this that, that scene. The score in that scene, while well, his dad is, you know, trying so delicately to say, "Well, we can't, <laughs> we can't very well kick Joe out," and the score in that scene is so over the top, emotional and soapy, and reminds me of a very similar scene in Lolita, where James Mason breaks up with Lolita, and it's the same sort of cartoonishly sad music. And I say like cartoonish and like hilariously sad because. It's like, you know, we're trying to elicit a sad reaction, uh, trying to make us feel bad for this guy who was, you know, sexually assaulting a woman while singing show tunes. But at this point yeah. in the movie, Kubrick is trying to be like, oh, poor Alex. You know, he's, he's having such a hard time, um, like his, his mom crying for him and stuff. And yeah, at this point in the movie, you know, the movie is trying to make us feel bad for just such an evil human being. It just, you know. Right, and and putting him in a situation that is going to be super tense, like that's the yeah. thing is this movie's all about tension, right? And Kubrick loves building tension, and he's going to let it build and build and build. And we know this is the same guy, and we see this guy's life now. He's in a wheelchair. He's got Darth Vader there pumping weight and like dragging him around uh, places. <laughs> with, yeah, which I mean, I was looking at that, I was like, that's that's Browse. It's got to be. And I looked at it, I was like, oh, of course it is. You know, and apparently, like the scene where he carries him down the steps, like he begged Kubrick, like, please don't make me do that more than a few times because that. I mean, like he was literally worn out the six yeah. times he had to do it. From, and I can see why that is not an easy task to pick a man and a wheelchair up and walk down 12 stairs you know, on a hardwood so. floor. So it tells you the kind of shape this dude was in, but you have all this going on and we know like this isn't going to go well. So he takes him and yes, yes, we'll take care of you. And he doesn't realize who he is. And, and he knows Alex's story and he gets on the phone with you know, some people, right? And he's going to tell him like, this is one of those people we've been hearing about in the, you know, the news that the, the government is taking these poor kids and they're trying to rehabilitate them with this horrible technique and they're just throwing them out on the streets and this will help us, you know, win our, uh, freedom or win, win the, uh, next election or whatever. So he's, He's going to make him into a pawn. And it's when he hangs up and Alex is singing, singing in the rain in the tub and he hears it. There's this close up on his face, man. Like when he's bent over in the wheelchair and he's just shaking and like drooling uncontrollably. And I'm going, I'm going to see that shot again in a few movies in The Shining. But holy cow, what a reaction to somebody like being triggered basically by a horrible thing. And then from then on, everything the guy does is Ultra sinister. Have more wine. Have some more. <laughs> Buries his plate, your face in the spaghetti. It's all, it's such a weird turn in act three. And like, you know, it's coming, but when it happens, you're like, oh man, this is when this movie goes like, you know, Eli Roth and people's toes start getting cut off and stuff. Oh yeah. It's, it's hardcore. Uh, that, 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 that actor, Patrick McGee is his name. Apparently when he was doing that scene, like, as far as like movies go, I don't think there's another movie made before 1971 where there's this, like we're just gonna have a close up of a guy having an epileptic fit. Apparently, the right. actor he said to McDowell off camera, "I don't know what the hell I'm doing, man. I feel like I'm having a great big shit." He, like, he, he <laughs> couldn't understand what he was doing. And then like, you you watch the movie, like you know, it makes sense as you're watching because like you know, like 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 that kind of epileptic fit, like that kind of physical reaction, at least makes sense because you know he went through something that would trigger that kind of 
post-traumatic stress. And yeah, I love yeah the, this this bizarre trying to hide the fact that he's about to get the drop on Alex. Like he's just barely containing his rage, but but also trying to be a host. You know, try the wine and talking about and he starts talking about. Uh, his wife, because you know, obviously, when you know, see David Prowse, when first time I watched, like, well, what happened to the wife? Did they kill her? And you find out that she ended up succumbing to the rape, and he, he says, a victim of the modern age. They don't say exactly what that is, but I always assume that Alex gave her an STD or something. Well, I, um, I, th- I think there's that. I also think she killed herself. Like that's the way I read awesome. it. Oh, yeah. Was that the the trauma from it? She just couldn't live anymore and killed herself. Yeah, that that'd be about right because you know, that'd be tough to go day to day after some, going through something like that. Well, I mean, yeah, I mean, I and what a horrible thing. I mean, again, it's the it's the tragedy of this is that there's no winners. There's just casualties in all this. Yeah, you know, it's 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 horrible. But he's telling him all of this, and we're starting to figure it out. And then these, you know, again, he passes out because obviously he's drugged the wine, you know, and which you know, who couldn't see that coming from a hundred miles away. Hmm. Um, and it's again it's such a weird scene. He's like, "Please have some more." And it's just like he, if he had a mustache, he would twirl it. Oh yeah. And then these two people, just random people, show up <laughs> to pick up the. And my question is, what are they going to do with him exactly? <laughs> like, are they just gonna hold him hostage and then like you know turn him out like I don't know a circus animal or something when they have a political rally? Like, I don't understand what their plan is exactly. Like, if they want to tell people, like, this is the horrible stuff that happens, well, sure, but, like, how are you going to prove it? Are you going to let him talk? Because you clearly aren't interested in that, and how can you control what he's going to say? Yeah, these these characters, I, I like to think they're probably not uh, malicious people. They probably, you know, they they showed up with this idea of, you know, that we're going to see how messed up this kid is, and we're going to help him out. But um, the opponents of the, you know, the current administration – and they just want to—they just want to see this, you know, technique in action. They'll drum up attacks on the other side. But the writer is, you know, he's not interested. He—he he was interested in that when Alex first showed up. But then, you know, he realizes this is just perfect chance for revenge. Because I think Alex—he very, uh, you know, unwisely tells him that you know the films that they showed me—they just happened to be using, you know, the, the Beethoven's Ninth Symphony and the soundtrack. So anytime I hear that. I get physically ill, and I think he even right. says, you know, I want to. I basically, I want to kill myself, and you know, you just see the wheels turning in the guy's head. It's like, oh, I'll tuck that away for later. Well, yeah, and that's what they do, right? Is they they strap him upstairs, lock him in a room, and start blaring the ninth, you know, throughout the house, and he loses his mind. And he starts banging his head on the floor, and I mean, I'm watching Malcolm McDowell. One, two, three, four, five, you know, hit his head on the floor. And I'm going, I mean, in the head, I'm going like, this is a Kubrick movie. So how many times did yep. you have to hit yourself <laughs> in the head before he said, yeah, that'll do, you know, and I'm like, probably, I don't know, a hundred, 150, who knows? So, I mean, he had to do all of that. And then his, his answer is finally like, screw it. I'm jumping out the window and he does and lands on the patio and, but we know he's not dead because he's been narrating the whole damn thing to mm. us the whole time, right? So he gets out of it by being able to wake up in the hospital and 
uh, now he's he's having all these weird dreams and like the doctor and the nurse are having sex in the room next to him and I don't know man like it's again it, this and you know the movie won me over I was like getting into it or whatever and now it's just like now we're just in we're in friggin you know Looney Tunes I don't know what the hell's going on at this point it it gets really strange but we get more and more of his narrations of how they keep feeding him and he gets back together and then we have that weird scene with the psychologist or psychiatrist. Who comes in and she shows him like incomplete thought bubble cartoons and he's supposed to fill them out for right. her. And everything he says is like the most violent, awful thing you could possibly say. So clearly the large hit on the head undid whatever the Ludovico technique was. Yeah, he t- he also talks about he probably did land on his head. And, and there, he says, I was having dreams of that like people were digging around in my brain. And what I think that is that that's the government you know, they got wind of this story and they said, we better, you know, this is, this is really bad. We better fix them up and reverse this technique. And yeah, that bizarre, you know, word association test that the, the psychologist very, seems very pleasant, happy with his answers. But the answers that he's giving is showing that this is a deeply disturbed and violent individual. But the, you know, these, but, the, but these are the answers that they want to hear to see that, Oh, you know, he's, he's all right now that he's, he's yeah. talking about, you know, violence and rape. Yeah, he's back to the way he was before. So we reversed it because you get the sense that like the government realized, hey, this is going to blow up in our face. So the only thing we can do is we need to act like it never happened. We need to cover it up. Right. <laughs> and their ultimate answer is, look, we'll give you a good job. We'll take care of you <laughs> as long as you just say like, hey, that that didn't happen. I went to jail and then I got out of jail and now I'm an upstanding citizen. One thing I like about that scene is I think the interior minister is the one who says uh, – the people who did this to you have been arrested. And it's like this, this, you know, as if the writer hadn't suffered enough, it's like now his chance at revenge. Now he's the one going to jail. Um, And yeah, it's this idea of this, this, this ending, because this is the last scene of the movie where where the politicians talking and it's a good time to bring up the big difference as far as, as far as I know between the book and the film is as I understand it, this, the way it was told to me is that when Kubrick read this book, it was an American, the American version of the book, apparently, for whatever reason, excised the final chapter. And it ends where the, where the movie ends, which is him in the hospital making the deal with the politician. Apparently, the ending of the book is after that scene, Alex is in public and he meets a girl and he has a normal relationship and all of a sudden – he snaps out of it entirely, and he goes, "What the hell have I been doing with my life?" And and he could totally snaps out of it. This idea that he's going to be fine. And what Burgess said that was the entire point of the book was the story of free will. It's like that's the that is such an ultimate showing of free will is that someone who is so malicious and evil choosing uh, not to be evil and malicious. Now, of course, Kubrick taking that out adds this just beyond sinister. Um, tone to the movie especially when alex like you know we suddenly see him having the dreams again of you know of two people having sex in the sand and like this this uh, him saying i was cured all right it makes me think of the ending of taxi driver yeah where uh travis you know at the very end of the movie he looks in the mirror kind of funny and we get this weird reverse sound on the soundtrack and it's this indication scorsese says it's this indication of the countdown has started where it's this is all it's all going to happen again. The violence is going to happen again. It's just you know just a matter of time. And this, this idea is you know maybe Alex is going to be a politician or whatever it is, but you know probably you know 
between the hours of you know 10 p.m. and 2 a.m., he's probably going to get up to the same stuff. Well, and again, going back to the 70s and even up until now, right, there's this huge distrust of our governments. And it's often been a part of popular culture where if you, you look at these people that wear their suits and ties and they look all prim and proper in the day, but they're into some really weird stuff if you like peel away the layers or they do some really sinister, awful things that we put people in prison for in other scenarios, but they do it hmm. because it's legislation. Yeah. Right. And so, and that's the, I mean, I think that's what they're playing off of here too. I honestly like hearing the way that book ends or whatever, like, I'm like, Oh, that's a real different bright sunshiny day from what, what we just experienced. I kind of <laughs> like, I think Kubrick may be right on this one. Like, no, 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 this needs to end in, with him going that it's a great line too. It's like, I was cured. All right. Like I was right <laughs> back to where I started. It's just that gleeful McDowell way of saying things. Oh, yeah. You're like, well, there's a lot of people that are going to be dead now because of that. So. Thanks a lot. So, I mean, but it leads you to the ultimate uh, appraisal is to go, what what good was any of it, right? Because the world's still in a crappy place. You've got two competing areas of the government, neither of which seem to actually have people's best interest in mind. They're just nope. interested in power, right, yep. and maintaining power, right? And so that's a very kind of libertarian uh, or anarchist view of this movie. But I, I think that's the point. Oh, yeah. It's uh, people that are only concerned with um, re-election and uh, probably, you know, writing a good book when it's over, even if it means trampling all over basic human rights. Like, I, I, I just finished re-watching uh, the first two seasons of uh, The West Wing, which is one of my favorite shows. And as I'm watching it, you know, I had Clockwork Orange in my brain thinking – this idea of the government taking away the most basic of human rights by, you know, trampling over someone's free will would make every character in the West Wing, you know, sit, kneel down, crouch in the corner and cry because um, it's just such a horrific thing to do. And that's kind of the, the, the question of this movie. I wonder if Kubrick – I know that this is what Anthony Burgess was saying. Uh, Kubrick seems to have a message of just like people – you know, like I was cured all right, this idea that people don't change. If you're evil, you're going to be evil your whole life, which is a pretty cynical, negative thing to do, to say. But Virgis was saying you know, this idea of, you know, the, uh, is taking away someone's free will in itself a more evil act than the worst things a person can do with their free will? Right. Um, and, of course, you know, I don't know. I, I'm not sure what the answer is to that. Because, again, on paper, this idea, if you could make a criminal not want to commit crimes, if that worked perfectly, yeah, that'd be good. But right. this idea of taking away their free will like that, it's like, well, you know, I don't want – it's like, it's it's a very uh, difficult and dangerous question. Well, it, it is a difficult, dangerous question. And what the film says and what the book is saying here is that – even if you think you can deprogram it, they never took away Alex's want to do evil things. They just made it so freaking uncomfortable for him to do it that he, he knew like it, it was, it's just like a dog. They just, you know, made yeah. a shock response out of it. Exactly. Again. And so you don't really change it. Mean, I go back to my Buffy thing from season four, like the evil vampire that Spike that gets the chip in his head still wants to kill everybody. 
Oh, yeah. All right, in the movie, the he just turns around to the side of good when he realized, wait a minute, if I punch other demon things, I don't get the electric shock, and since I like to fight, and that's the only thing I can do, well, if I can't kill you right now, I'll help you kill all the people that you know you're trying to fight. Like, he's not, he's, but he's not good, right? He's he's just he he just is evil on your side, and that's also another big statement here. Is like eh, evil could be a little subjective too, depending on who's in control and who's in charge. And it's, it's a dark world, man. And what a, and, and, you know, we talked about it coming out of 2001, right? The, the idea there was that technology is so much smarter than us, but what if it became paranoid, right? And the, <laughs> what Kubrick has come back to with this movie is saying like, well, there's nothing more paranoid than real people. And when yeah. you get a real psycho, there's nothing you can do to change that. Even if you want to, there's nothing that changes it because he, for Kubrick, it's very Calvinistic. It is. You are predetermined to be what you are, and it is what you will be. And Burgess is very much more in the free will. So it's an interesting argument that we could have on forever, presented into a very strange film. And it's the time of the podcast where it's time to give final thoughts, recommendations, and popcorn ratings. So, Kurt, what are yours for A Clockwork Orange? Well, uh, I've seen A Clockwork Orange a couple times now. Uh, but really, once is all you need for this movie to be cemented into your brain forever. It definitely cements singing in the rain into my brain, especially when Kubrick has Gene Kelly's original version playing immediately after Alex says he was cured. Credits directed by Stanley Kubrick. All of a sudden, we're listening to Gene Kelly. And every time I watch this movie, I think the same thing. Well, like a lot of dark movies, whether it's you know, Schindler's List or whatever, which is that was fantastic. And I'm not watching that again for a couple of years. I think it was a YouTube comment. It was about the bathtub scene where the guy's having the epileptic fit and just said, this scene gives me such anxiety. And I think that really sums up this movie is that it is so hard to watch, whether it's a, a violent scene or not. It's just it's just hard to watch. Every scene is riddled with such an insane amount of tension, especially in that first half, just with the presence of Alex, because, you know, there's nothing stopping him from. Uh, you know, destroying a person, and this character—you know—he's not a dead—he's not a dead serious uh, monster. He's this devilishly charming imp of a villain that, at least, I can't help but enjoy watching. He is fun to watch, despite what he does. Uh, which brings to mind, you know, a, a, a definitely uh, a performance that is similar. And he—he he said he was going for this, which is Heath Ledger as the Joker. In the dark night, like he literally said to Gary Oldman, there's like some scene, like that scene where he's clapping, looking right into the lens. And Gary Oldman said to him, it's like, God, that, that's like, that's very, you know, Malcolm McDowell. It's like, yeah, I was watching yeah. Clockwork Orange in my trailer before, wow. uh, before I did this scene. <laughs> but this guy of Alex, there's, there's never been a more likable, evil bastard in movies, I would say. So when the movie flips and makes me feel sorry for Alex. This causes this tornado in my brain where I'm going, he's killed two people that we know about, but I'm feeling sorry for him that his parents kicked him out of the house. And so much of that, the sympathy comes down to Malcolm McDowell's unbelievable performance. He makes Alex charming as well as threatening. Now, I mean, I have to really think about this, but it, I, I, I might just say that uh, this performance might be number one when it comes to performances that were not nominated for Oscars. I think if anyone didn't know, they would just assume he had to be up for an Oscar for what he did because it's so different and usual and great and funny and and disturbing. But what's weirder is that the, the rest of the movie was nominated for Oscars. It was up for Best Editing and three nominations for Kubrick himself for Best Screenplay, Best Director, and Best Picture, making this the last 
X-rated film to be nominated for Best Picture. I believe the only other one was uh, Midnight Cowboy a yeah. couple years ago, which won. Um, a Clockwork Orange is a movie that tries to be many things at once and succeeds in every respect. It's a drama. It's a coming-of-age movie. It's a sci-fi movie. It's a crime story. It's a, this experimental art film. Um, now, only a real genius or a real nutbag would try to make a movie like that. And in 1971, before you know, before people would be any be, have any notion of uh, a movie like that. And Kubrick exactly is that genius nutbag. A Clockwork Orange is unforgettable, whether you like it or not. And I think it's a masterpiece. Extra large popcorn all the way. Wow. I, you've summed it up really well, Kurt. I don't know that I can add much more to that other than just give my perspective of you know spending the bulk of my life not seeing this movie and sort of knowing what it was about and then finally watching it and coming to grips with the fact that there is some horrible stuff in this that is absolutely disturbing and hard to watch. And so it is not for the, you know, the it's for the only the most discerning eyes. Like if you know, that kind of thing is going to not be a good time for you or to the scenes that we're talking about, the violence and, and the, the assaults and just all of it is going to be too much to handle. You don't have to see it, Uh, skip it. And you probably (laughs) should miss it or whatever. But if you want to see this and and realize what you're being shown is, once again, it is not to glorify or titillate you. It is to shock you and scare you and really get you in a weird mindset for the first 30 minutes of this movie. If you can get through that and get to the back two acts, I think you're in for a really, really interesting mind screw of a film. And, And I mean that in all complimentary ways. This is a film that doesn't want you to like it. It doesn't want you to emulate it. It's why Kubrick was absolutely horrified when people started to emulate this, because that was Hmm. not what he was going for at all. And he's not to be blamed for that, because people are going to do weird, random stuff anyway. They just look for excuses to tag it on, too. That's my opinion there. Hmm. This is the kind of movie that can... You watch it, and you need to talk to people about it. Like it's one of those that I don't like a solo experience. Like it's one of those like if you want to like you you pick out some movies to watch with your friends because you can have a good time with it. This is one you watch with people and then you go have a conversation with like a movie like Inception <laughs> or something like that or Taxi Driver that you mentioned earlier. Yeah. You watch that movie and you do want to have a conversation about that at the end of it and you probably should to sort of decompress some of this stuff because it is heavy. I'm not gonna lie, it is the heaviest thing Kubrick's done up to this point. And while it makes me just as uncomfortable as Lolita did. This one has so I felt like Lolita in a lot of ways glorified some of that really horrible actions of its characters. This one doesn't do that. It it gives you the understanding that like bad this person's going to do bad things and horrible things are going to happen to him and in the end you're going to root you're going to hate him, you're going to root for him and then you're going to hate him again, but you're also going to hate <laughs> everybody else around him. <laughs> because the problem and the evil is all of us. You know, that that's what it's saying. It's like, you want to see the bad guy? Look in the mirror. And that's a scary proposition, but it's a really interesting one. And again, Kubrick, in his shortest time frame on a cheap budget, made something that is an absolute classic. All right? And so again, if it's the subject matter is going to be something that you know you can absolutely not get around to deal with, then skip it. You don't need it in your life. It's okay. You know, you can hear us talk about it and that, that could be enough or just, you know, you don't need it, whatever. You've never done it. So what? 
But if you're into film and you want to look at something that, again, is very challenging, is very dark and weird, and is about all these themes that we've discussed the last hour or so, this is definitely one for you. And I think it is what a follow-up to a masterpiece film. Again, 2001 is one of my favorite films. I will hold it up as one of the best things ever made for cinema, ever. You know, period, end, full stop. And to follow it up with something that is just as intriguing but a completely different spectrum. Hmm. And now that you've given me this new retcon, Kurt, where it's the same world, so like the 2001's happening and then back on earth, you know, like I, now I have a whole new appreciation for this because I, I watched this twice and I thought I will never watch this again. And I can't say that honestly, I probably will at some point revisit this probably be in a context where again, I can have that conversation with other people, but I'm joining. I think this is a fantastic film. There's things in it that, Again, are very disturbing. I've said that enough uh, to, to prove that point. But I think in the end, the journey is worth it for going through it. So it's extra large popcorn for me as well. It's just a fantastic film, a very weird one. And we're going to take another big left turn when we visit Kubrick again, man. We're going to do some uh, French Napoleonic era history type stuff yeah. now. Barry Lyndon. I've never seen Barry Lyndon, so I have no idea what I'm in, in store for here other than Ryan O'Neill is in it. So I know I'm going to get Lifetime movie on a big screen. <laughs> oh, yeah. We're talking about another – much like with 2001 The Clockwork Orange, this is going to be another wicked uh, change of pace where he's Kubrick slows way down and makes basically makes it almost like into a three-hour you know, painting. It's a very different yeah. kind of movie. Yeah, very different thing. And again, that's, that's the thing that makes Stanley Kubrick's films so interesting is each one of them is, is a different experience in a lot of ways. So we've, we've gotten through A Clockwork Orange. We've got a few left to go, so Barry Lyndon will be next. But, Kurt, it's good to have you back on the show and talk a little Kubrick, and we'll definitely have you back on again soon. Tell folks how they can uh, find your stuff on the Internet webs and keep up with you. Well, I was happy to, happy to be back. And uh, anyone who uh, would like to hear more from me, there's the Fabish Factor Film Podcast. I haven't recorded in a little bit, but uh, you can find it on SoundCloud. You can find it on iTunes. Um, and you can also find my uh, film reviews on uh, letterbox.com. Look for Kurt Fabish. Um, and you can also find us on the, uh, the Fabish Factor Film Group on Facebook, where we get into very much the same discussions that we just had during this podcast, but just in, uh, over Facebook via text. But uh, we're out there. You can find us. Yeah, absolutely. So, again, thanks for joining in here on Filmstrip, Kurt. Be glad to have you back on again. Folks, of course, you can find the Filmstrip Podcast at your favorite podcatcher. Wherever you see us, just search Filmstrip Podcast. And if you would, leave us a good, positive review. It helps people find the show. Um, you can go to filmstrippodcast.com, and you'll find the archive of our entire show run there, or, or the better part of our show run. We uh, Brian and I curated it, and so we're, we've got you know, over 170 episodes in the back catalog and then the new stuff that we've been doing here in 2019. And we'll be back in a couple of weeks. We're on a bi-weekly release schedule right now, so lots of cool stuff coming up as we get into the back end here of 2019. And again, Kurt, you and I will definitely revisit Kubrick at least once more before the end of the year, maybe more than that, as we as we wind down through the, the films of Stanley Kubrick. But again, folks, thanks for joining us here. You can follow the podcast on uh, Twitter as well, at FilmStripPod, and you can follow me at Skipworth on Twitter. Be glad to interact with you and appreciate the support. Until next time, for Kurt, I'm Jay. Thanks for listening to FilmStrip. Thank you for listening to FilmStrip. You can find more episodes on our website, filmstrippodcast.com. The Filmstrip theme music is produced and performed by Frozen Lake 121. 
All content used or discussed in these podcast episodes is the property of the respective owners and used under the Fair Use Act, Section 504C2, Title 17.